Hopkins recently. We've had uh, Michael Pollan, James Goodall, uh, Ed Longari Masai, and uh, Chris Rose, and uh, many other interesting people. We've switched to politics this year, and uh, in the fall we had uh, the mayor of Newark, Cory Booker, who was with us and uh, just wrote a book. I want to take a moment to recognize uh, Robert Meyerhoff and his late wife, Jane, for making this program possible originally, and then Rita Becker for joining us and making it such a success today. Bob and Rita. David Brooks became an op-ed columnist for the New York Times in September of 2003, and I think most people would say that he was a keen observer of the American way of life and a savvy analyst of present-day politics and foreign affairs. David has also been an editor of the Weekly Standard, contributing editor of Newsweek and The Atlantic, and he's a regular commentator on the NewsHour on PBS. He previously worked for the Wall Street Journal, including as a correspondent in Brussels, covering Russia, the Middle East, South Africa, and Europe. He's contributed to many publications as a distinguished collector of books. His latest, well, one of his best known books is Bobos in Paradise, The New Upper Class and How They Got There. And his newest book is called The Social Animal, The Hidden Sources of Love, Character, and Achievement, in which he discusses why neuroscience and sociology are important to thinking about politics, culture, and the future of America and the world. Uh, after the talk this evening, David will be signing books in the Rosenberg Cafe just outside the auditorium. The topic tonight is What is an American? We will talk, we'll have a little conversation, and then we'll take students from the audience with Bachelor students being given preference to ask us questions as is customary. Please join me in welcoming the spring 2012 Robert and Jane Meyerhoff Evening Professor David Brooks. And the 
the first uh, problem, of course, is the diversity of that. I drove up uh, from the Bay of Maryland today, uh, and as you drive up from here, coming down the desert in Kennedy County, you pass through some distinct and incredibly diverse cultural realm. If you start as many of you know the Bay of Maryland, we've got our own little culture down there, whether that's the Bay Elementary School of CES educated high professor kids who are staring at the young people who didn't come backpacks on their back as the wind blows them over. They're like beetles sort of stuck there on the ground. And there are these um, cars in the desert come to pick them up and take off. And I always involve those because of my family. Most of the sexual level of the cars belong to some kind of country hospital or foreign policy. So these are pretty diverse cultural places, and of course I'm only giving myself a couple different cultures, but we are 
And I do think that we have some unifying qualities, whether you think of your family being here in the 16th century, uh, the 21st century, or maybe even centuries before. And I think that quality is energy. And that is, if you go back to the descriptions of America, it's always been energy that outsiders have described most. The average American works an average of 350 hours a year longer than the average European. That's nine weeks a year more. Uh, we marry more. We divorce more. We switch jobs about four times more frequently than people in other countries. We murder each other more. Uh, we go to church more. We have more babies than most comparable countries. So in 2035, the average Chinese person would be 53 years old. The average Japanese person would be 52. The average American would be 39. And so we are a fertile uh, country. Uh, we are, if you look at the polls, and as great sociologists and Seymour Martin looks at this, he says we are exceptional, and that, that doesn't mean better, it just means we're an outlier in poll after poll of these global attitudes. One of the questions that always struck me as key in, in make it, making us an outlier is the question, do you control your own destiny? Americans are way out on the edge in thinking we control our own destiny and that that's a relatively little place. Whether that's accurate or not, we believe it. Uh, we eat out more. We give much, much more to charity than people in almost every other country to colleges and universities. We associate more. We have great spontaneous sociability. And we are richer. Uh, if you make $80,000 a year or more, you're probably in the top 99.99% of any human being who's ever lived. And yet, despite this affluence, we, uh, we haven't really been corrected by it. We still work phenomenally hard. So what accounts for the energy? Well, I think in a phrase, it's moral materialism. When Europeans came to these shores in the six or you know, four or five hundred years ago, they landed, whether it was in Massachusetts, whether it was in Virginia, whether it was by the Chesapeake Bay, and they were just astounded by the natural abundance, by forests stretching 3,000 miles, by flocks of geese that took um, 45 minutes to take off. And they, 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 they would describe these flocks as a gigantic bigger than anything they'd ever seen that actually two cannonballs in the flock just to see if they get the flock to change direction, but they were so big they couldn't. And so these early European settlers had two thoughts. One, that God planned for humanity to be complete here. And second, that they could get really rich in the process. And so this spiritual impulse and the moral impulse and the materialist impulse have created a very unique culture, a culture that sometimes makes us the shallowest people on earth, at the same time, we fight over abortion, we fight over faith, we fight over some of the more spiritual things. It's given us, I think, a very future orientation, that we see the present from the vantage point of the future. Integrating here is an act of thinking about the present from the vantage point of the future, of seeing the reality now, just as a way station on the, the reality that is more real in the future. There's a great novel written decades ago now called The Giant Sphere by a, a, a Scandinavian writer who went to the, the, the Midwestern Minnesota Wisconsin area. And one of the scenes in that novel, uh, the main character is describing the farm in Minnesota, wherever it was. And he's saying, here's the outhouses, here's the farm building, here's the house. And he's describing them as if there they are. And the visitor says, well, I'm sorry, we're pointing to things. I don't see any buildings. And the guy says, well, I haven't spoken yet, but this is where they'll be. And that 
is uh, one of the things people notice that time years would move across the west. They would stop, they would pass by perfectly good farmland because they were convinced something was better to either shift over the horizon. And I do think that mentality has been passed down generation upon generation. One of the things you see if you study even a little sociology and brain science is that habits of mind are passed down without us even being aware of it. One of my favorite cultural experiments is somebody has a great idea of looking at people having coffee at different places around the world and measuring how often they touched each other. And so in Rio, they touch each other 180 times an hour for strength of this. In Paris, 120 times an hour. In London, zero times an hour. And so these cultural things are deep. They look at uh, another famous experiment. They ask Chinese people and Americans to describe a fish tank. And the Chinese people describe the vegetation of the fish tank, the relationship to the fish. Americans, we just pick up the biggest fish and we describe that. They look at eye facades, the movement of the eyes. People look at the Mona Lisa. The Chinese eyes are going across the whole thing. The American eyes are just looking at the eyes and the mouth of the fishes. And so these things, even the way you see the world, are deeply rooted in things you grow up in. And this moral materialism was there in hundreds of years ago, and I think it's still there, giving us an amazing energy. And I think it's the foundation of our strength and will be. Now, there are obviously these great strengths, there are also problems. There's the human capital problem. We became the richest country on earth for 50 years to lead by 36 years. As every country got more educated year by year, we were 36 years ahead in the 19th century. And over the last 30 years, we've entirely squandered that advantage. The second problem is inequality. I define inequality different than the Occupy Wall Street. I think it's a gap not only between the top 1% and everybody else, but people with college degrees and people without. In 1964, families who were college educated or non college educated uh, made similar family structures. That's no longer true. People with college degrees have passed the divorce rate. They vote twice as often. They volunteer twice as often. They're much less likely to be obese, much less likely to smoke. And so we've had this social bifurcation. And we've had an attitudinal bifurcation where people without high school degrees are much more distrustful of people with college degrees. So this really is a chasm opening up between the two cultures. But the problem, and I want to talk about strengths and weaknesses of the country, the problem I want to focus on is less those which I think are well rehearsed and more for a few minutes like cultural problems. And to describe, I think, the cultural problem, which I think is a, a deep psychological problem that the country has to grapple with, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to the 1940s. And if you live uh, where I do in, in uh, the D.C. area, I don't know if they have it here on our local NPR station, we have a, pro, a program on Sunday night called, called The Big Broadcast. And they replay old radio shows. And I happened to be driving home one night, and they replayed an old radio show called Command Performance. And Command Performance was a show that went out to the troops in World War II. And it was a variety show, all these stars were on it. And I happened to hear the episode that was broadcast on Dean Sagan in 1945. In fact, Dean Crosby, who was the host, got out there and said, uh, we just learned hours ago that the Japanese have announced they will surrender. And then he said, uh, I guess at this moment, where we don't feel particularly proud, we just feel humble, we're just glad we got through. And I was really struck by the tone of modesty in what Jim Crosby said. And that tone was replicated again and again during the broadcast. In the middle of the broadcast, Burgess Meredith, the great character actor, gets out there and reads a passage from Ernie Pyle, the war correspondent. 
and Kyle had written, we won the war because we had great soldiers, we had great allies, we had the magic material of London. We didn't want to think we're God's chosen people or we're better than anybody else. We should just try to be worthy of the peace. And again, an incredible form of modesty. So I get home, I turn on the TV, I watch a football game, and I was quarterback for the time the wide receiver catches the pass, and uh, it's tackled after a two-yard game. And the defensive player does what all defensive players do at moments of great personal achievement. He does a self-puffing victory dance in honor of himself. And it occurred to me I'd seen a bigger victory dance after a two-yard game than I'd heard after winning World War II. Uh, and this symbolized me the exchange between the culture of self-effacement which says, I know that anybody else, but nobody's better than me, to a culture of sort of self self-assertiveness, self-advertisement. And this culture is not only me being nostalgic for a time when I wasn't alive. I think if you go back and look at some of the leaders at that time, you do see more of a culture of self-assertiveness in ways that would be more unusual than not unheard of today. And so, for example, the man who ran the D-Day invasion was Dwight Eisenhower. When Dwight Eisenhower was three, his mom, he wanted to go to the treating. And his mom, who was, wouldn't let him because he was three. And, and so Eisenhower punched the tree in his front yard until all the skin wore off his finger. And his mom sent him to the room and said, I'll be there in an hour. You think about what you've done. And Eisenhower cries for an hour, and his mom comes up and says to him, quotes from the verse, He who conquers his own soul is greater than he who conquers the city. And when he was 76, Eisenhower said that was the most important moment in his life. Because it taught him there was sin within himself. And that he had to fight it. If you go back to the commissioning addresses that they've done in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, a lot of times the college presidents will say, You're Satan, and please congratulate the class. You have to fight Satan within you. Not something we particularly say today, but that was the theory of character building. If you have evil within yourself, you have to fight a struggle. The man who ran the army was, was George D. Marshall. Marshall desperately wanted to run the D-Day invasion, which Eisenhower got to do. And Roosevelt knew that if Marshall said, hey, yes, I'd like that job, which was in 1943, that he had to give it to him. Churchill told him he would get the job. Stalin told him he would get the job. FDR called him in the Oval Office and said, would you like the job? And Marshall said, my opinions have no bearing on what you want to do. And Roosevelt asked him four separate times. And each time, Marshall said, my emotions can play no role in the decision. And Roosevelt took the opportunity to see Marshall close to home and give the job to Eisenhower, and Marshall was struck. But that was the ethos you live by. You don't promote your job. And I remember we've been covering uh, George H.W. Bush's campaign, the first campaign. His staff had a terrible time getting him to talk about himself. Because he was raised in the ethos that you don't talk about yourself. His staff would beat him up. You never talk about yourself. He finally do it, and his mom would call and say, George, you're talking about yourself. And so, that was the ethos. And the ethos changed, and it changed for a lot of uh, good reasons. Uh, people decided uh, that, uh, you know, Americans, what they needed, there was not too much pride, that was not the primary concern. They didn't have enough self-love, they didn't have enough self-esteem. And that was one of the reasons it changed. Second, people decided that that ethos in the 50s was too conformist, too group oriented. So they wanted something more individualistic. And finally, during the 50s and 60s, a lot of people, fortunately, had many more opportunities, women, minorities. Uh, and if you had a group of people whose self aspirations were too low, 
you needed a culture to promote self-esteem. And so this was all very valuable to do, yet I think that certain character model and a certain virtue was lost in that shift as sort of a peripheral damage. And the evidence of that shift is now surrounding us. So, for example, in 1950, the Gallup organization and high school seniors are you a very important person. And in 1950, 12% of seniors said, yes, I'm a very important person. So that's that question again in 2005, and it wasn't 12%, it was 80% who said, I'm a very important person. If you look at math scores, American math scores are 36 in the world. If you ask Americans, are you really good at math? We are number one in the world in thinking we're really good at math. Uh, psychologists do the test, they call the narcissism test. And they say, I'm going to read you a bunch of statements beginning to five years. And these statements include things like, I love to be the center of attention. I usually show up if I get the chance because I'm extraordinary. Someone could write a biography about me. And so the number of people who say yes, those apply to them has increased by 30% in the last two decades. And so there's been this rapid increase even post-baby boomers. We live in a very self-confident country. It will not be a surprise to some younger that 96% of college professors believe they have above average teaching skills. Uh, I remember being raised recently asked Americans, are you in the top 1% of learners? 19% of Americans are in the top 1% of learners. This is John with a tremendously um, greater emphasis, especially in young people, than fame. And so growing up in reality shows, becoming famous has become a much higher priority. So in UCLA studies, a college freshman, becoming famous is not quite as popular as, um, as having a deep social life. Uh, one, one group of middle school girls were asked, would you rather be Justin Bieber's personal assistant or president of Harvard? And of course, three times as many would rather be Justin Bieber's personal assistant. So I had a chance to ask the president of Harvard if she would rather be Justin Bieber's personal assistant. And then the second was college students were asked, would you rather be famous or have sex? And of course, twice as many would rather be famous than have sex. And I always want to tell them, you know, I'm on TV, I'm sort of famous. I'm 50, I can remember that, and sex is better. But, uh, yeah, so, um, so this is a shift. Uh, and, and I think this shift has had some, has contributed in some small but not insignificant way to some big problems. One, consumption. If you think you're pretty special, you want to spend uh, on yourself in a manner that protects your safety. And so consumption patterns, which are basically the same for the first seven years of the 20th century, change. Personal debt is a kind of GDP is 43% of GDP decade after decade. It shoots up to 133% because people want to spend on themselves. Yet, every generation has an incentive to push debt off in the future uh, and to spend on themselves. So, no generation is done until ours. I think because they saw themselves as just one piece of the long chain of generations. Fourth, polarization. If you're modest about your own opinions and realize they're only partial, then you know the people on the other side you need them to correct your own errors. But if you're incredibly confident in your polarization, uh, in your beliefs, then the people on the other side are just sort of in the way. And until next year, the left wing law of his fulfillment is both like an ego maniac and a pretty partisan polarizing person. Moral inarticulateness. 
we spread the word, maybe my generation, I think the current generation grew up with a view that if you could develop your own moral viewpoint, come up with your own world view. Well, if you need to Aristotle, that's probably possible. For most of us, it's very difficult. And I was really struck by research on policy and by Christian Smith that when you ask them to describe a moral dilemma, about nearly half of them couldn't describe a moral dilemma. They would say, well, I told you to up in a parking space, there are not enough quarters. And you say, that's not a moral dilemma. And that doesn't mean they were bad people, they just lacked the vocabulary to talk about themselves. And so I think there's truth to, from the Christian culture of self-reflection to a culture of self-expansion is a cultural shift we have to worry about to go along with the other problems I mentioned. And so these are problems in the quality human capital to shift in culture. We have two white people defined, 60% of Americans now think we are, we are defined as a country of China, is the country of the future, and I really do not see that, despite our problems. First, we've got the younger generation. I've mentioned some of the cultural problems I think they confront. But if you want to feel good about the country, spend time with people under 35. All the social indicators that went south in the 60s and stayed south through the 80s are now on the upswing. The teenage pregnancy is down a third. Abortion rates are down a third. Domestic violence is down 50%. Crime is down 70%. Human suicide is down. It's an incredibly wholesome and responsible generation. We're all going to have the biggest midlife crisis in about 10 years. But up until then, they're incredibly responsible. Second, the economy, I think, is due for a big rebound. And I rely on the economist and Tyler Cowan at George Mason, who recently wrote an article explaining some of the reasons we will have a rebound. One, smart machinery. You go for a factory, it's mostly robotics and software. Well, we're not great at low-cost labor, or low-cost labor, but we're really good at robotics and software. And as with third-star factories around the world, our way of shipping is going to go away. Our ability to export this smart machinery will go up. Second, the developing world is getting richer and moving up the value chain. As they get, when they start up poor, they begin wanting, wanting to import resources. Lumber and stuff like that. As they get richer, they want to start importing pharmaceuticals, aircraft, other things that we actually make pretty well through more complicated projects. And you've already begun to see American exports go up, grow by about 16% a year. Barack Obama said he would double exports over an eight year period. He's on pace to hit that. And so that's a good sign. Finally, the energy revolution. Assuming we can find clean ways to harvest the oil and gas and get to our new technologies through fracking. Assuming we can do that fine, we will become a great export in a big way. And so then the final reason I go back to what I started with is our culture. The things we inherited from our ancestors and things we just moved to. We have this moral material for culture. And I always say if you want to see that culture in its purest form, Go watch an American man buy a barbecue grill at a Home Depot. Because that's when he's most emotionally exposed. Uh, he's going into the Home Depot, uh, and he's seen a man in a waddle that he didn't do in his presence, large amounts of lumber. Uh, and he's going to buy a Weber Genesis grill, which is in a more materialistic country. We're going to name a barbecue grill after a book in the Bible. That makes sense. Make up a 942 inch grill surface in case he gets years to roast the bison. He's going to take it out to his oversized truck out there and make it one of these big box malls and then 
building shopping area and there's sort of a pectoral view or a pectoral view or lenses and things that they have to be on. So that gigantic parking lot just over the Silver City Earth, you can see an old Navy way over there. Then along the highway, there are all the suburban teen restaurants with the same merge, which is called Billy Dollar Garden Hard Rock Cafe. I think he is there along the highway. And the Walmart over here, and, and on this side, the, my favorite store, the top store, the Sam's Club, which is the town store, which is like Walmart on acid. Uh, in those places, you can buy the boxes of 60 pounds of tater tots, big things of 120 pounds of detergent, um, packages with 3,000 Q-tips, which is 6,000 swabs, because there's one on either end. So you, you go through here and you think, you know, who comes here shopping for condoms? It's a quantity. Uh, so it's identical. And so that's the point I'd like to leave you with. That, um, <laughs> there are a lot of optimistic people in America. And you can, I'd like to uh, draw you into talking about politics a little bit, because this is continuing. And um, I, I was struck, you talked about educational achievement, you mentioned for American cities, we have the highest educational achievement in the world, where one in 12 or 14, depending on the survey you look at. And uh, there was a very interesting and salient moment a few weeks ago in the campaign when uh, Rick Santorum said that Barack Obama was being a snob in his suggestion that all Americans should probably go to college. And Santorum, he seemed to be responsible and he said there are all these hardworking Americans out there who didn't go to college and didn't need to go to college and they were doing just fine. And I just wonder um, what you make of that. What, what, what kind of, uh, what does that tell us about the American body politic, the electorate, to feel? Well, the first thing is to tell us is he lives beneath uh, the age cold. Because if you look at who is voting for uh, Mitt Romney, it's he's the FBS college educated. If you look at who's voting for Rick Santorum, it's non college educated down here. What this is exactly the pattern that was replicated uh, in the 2000 Democratic primary when Obama was getting the FBS and Hillary Clinton was getting the Democratic. And that when I talk about the bifurcation, so he was saying, oh, I've got all these less educated voters, I'll play this game. Now, did it actually work? Well, somebody just told him on this, and a lot of people who didn't go to college all want their kids to go to college. Uh, and so it didn't work. And I doubt he'll say that again. Uh, the one thing I'll give him credit for is if you look at the reasons people don't graduate from college, a lot of it has to do with lack of academic disparity, some of it has to do with lack of financial ability, but our ability to predict at a quite early age, who's going to graduate from college is high. And one of the 
about five of these churches in the Passion Period where they look at kids at 18 months and they see if they get through Passion to Mom. And looking at this experiment at 18 months, they can predict that 77 practices who can graduate from high school. Because kids at 18 months who can have a true Passion to Mom have a model of how they touch the mom, a model of how they touch the teacher, a model in their head of how to use other human beings as well as the device. Do that school be okay? Can do that school be fine? And so the breakdown in the family, based on American kids born out of wedlock, is an issue only he will talk about. And so I think it's a crucial issue to think about human capital development because it is that that ground of human capital is the, the area that failing happens fastest. And so I give him some credit for that. I don't give him credit for this pseudo populist play. But if he's willing to talk about that, what does this thinking of these thinking about that? How is it? How do you agree with this? Forty-four percent of Americans born in one of the last. We also think this is something. So I've spoken almost every time. Politicians that I ever cover about this subject will nod, and I just tell you to pop back, and I say, well, A, we can't do anything. Or be well, if I do do something, then I'm looking at all the bad ways I can't get it. And so I think there has to be a left right um, set of policy options. The left or right seeming anyway. One of the reasons people don't get married is not that they don't want to get married, but they want to get married. But they, 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 a lot of people now have a life script that says, I will uh, actually get a job, make a success for myself, and then I'll get married. Where in earlier generations, the marriage came first and helped you do the other thing. And so I think rearranging that life script is important. The second most important thing, and this is more left seeing policy, is that a lot of men are not marriageable because they don't have the wages. So I think saying we are going to give them tax credits to men and wage subsidies would make men more marriageable. Uh, and so some left and some right together, I think you put together a good agenda that could actually do some good, I think, from a comparative perspective. So, who can you put together that agenda? Who's the, who's the politician who's willing to do that? Uh, that person doesn't exist. Uh, the, uh, the, I can tell you if you're, say, and I'll send this conversation to us directly, but the guy sitting in the white house. You want to Well, he's going to answer what they would be thinking. Okay, A, you want me to start talking about women should get married, and they're going to we're going to go on some sort of saga, right? And then you want me to propose wage subsidies uh, for workers who are going to become socialists. Uh, and in fact, on the same day that they were going to propose wage subsidies, and that was another farm that wasn't very good, obviously. But I do think that there are a group of things that have to be tried. Some states have tried things. Oklahoma has tried things. There's something very hard to do. Maybe even government is not the place to, to do this. But again, it's not a question of values. People want to have traditional values. And what we live in a society where people miseducated class talk left but live right. And so college educated people have often inherited divorce rates. Very stable systems. People in the working class talk right but live left. And somehow we have to bring the two so everyone talks left and lives right. But so, give a candidate for president. Do you dare to have a candidate for president? Uh, we're not allowed to have a candidate. I 
there was one guy, I, I didn't see who I wanted to run. In 2006, I wrote a column called Run Barack Run, so I wanted to run. And this time, uh, I wanted Rich Daniels to run. I thought he was going to be in Governor of Indiana. I liked the idea that, well, I like the best idea that his bike was just slow to the ground and touch to the people. Um, but um, I, I wanted a dull man just someone who would be confident. And I will say, somebody who's not going to run, but I think would be a fine president, is Robert Gates, who was Secretary of Defense under Obama and Bush. So, what do you think of the Socialist administration, and he announced Wednesday that he was leaving the party. And 
Minnesota. Uh, too much of this happening, but there's no real scientific teaching to that. It's like one movement called the No Labels movement, which is spread from the time. But you see, through the movement, it's the first word is no. You can't be just the thing that's working for. Uh, we're going to welcome questions, especially from graduate students. There's a microphone over here and another one over there. And while we're waiting, Well, I'm Jackson. I'm an international relations major, a junior from Arlington, Virginia. And this should be yeah. All right. So, um, the, the past couple of years have seen, at least from my perspective, a lot of surprising types of, I guess, contradictions between the behavior of, especially the Republican parties, and also like some of the ways that Talk about American exceptionalism. I think 
than me, and I think it's supposed to be a legitimate phrase because they're absorbed as what she said, but it's a real thing because we are outliers. And so when they talk about American exceptionalism, it's the belief that the American government is smaller than in almost every other comparable country, and therefore that individual responsibility kind of goes back and forth. Whether they are always through that belief when it comes to subsidies that come to themselves, well, that's also part of America. Uh, you know, we all uh, want more government than we're willing to pay for. And uh, Red States uh, certainly is guilty of that as anybody. Because we're afraid of talking about the cultural and behavioral. And 
And so, obviously, the two feet on each other, which is why when I mentioned the marriage thing, I mentioned the rape subsidies as well as the social security. You need to get them both right. But we have an economic system in the policy world where economics is sort of the gateway between all social science research and public policy thinking. So when you go to Washington, economics is what matters. Sociology, psychology, all that stuff has very little interest. And so we have overemphasized economic factors and underemphasized all the other stuff. But I agree with you that it's, it's, you can't divide one from the other because that's the way people live. They don't divide things in real life. Thank you. There was an article in the New York Magazine about a month ago that talked about how a lot of people in DOP are referring to exhaustion as kind of their last chance, saying that Paul Andre is available to his roadmap for him now. Americans are sort of like a tipping point beyond which it will be unable to enforce. And one of the arguments is that, you know, while these predictions of some social apocalypse are still blown, Two elections in a row, 
because they definitely deserve victory. But I can tell you that the other party can more victory at that moment. And so they don't have to be correct their own team. And so that, that would be my fear. Uh, but I think eventually they, they're going to run into a basket because they know they have to. Um, first on the apocalypse, let me just say a quick word on that. I've had this argument with Paul Ryan and others many, many times. They think Obama is a socialist. I think he's more liberal than he thinks he is. But still, you know, pretty neat being pragmatic liberal. And so they, they have a more apocalyptic view than I do, in part because members of parties don't uh, know very much about each other. I have a dumb rule of interviewing. I'm going to be one Republican for one Democrat. Uh, and uh, just to keep myself balanced. So members of each party never talk to somebody on the other side. And so they know almost nothing about what they're thinking. So I see Obama, and I know what he's reconciling with. I know he's so much pressure comes from the left, so much security from the left. People in the Republican Party don't understand that because all they, they think, oh, he's on the far left of the Democratic Party. They don't truly understand the other party. And then as for Democrats looking at Republicans, there's a book out now called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And one of the things he does is basically ask, he gives people the same questions in the two movements, conservative and liberal, and conservatives to predict what how liberals will answer these questions. And conservatives are quite good at predicting how liberals will answer these questions. They understand how liberals think. Liberals are terrible at predicting how conservatives will answer. They don't understand. And so that's just an easy way to go I'd also accidentally say, well, the determining. My favorite explanation is voting. People used to get drunk together. They don't do that. There's voting patterns. When they vote, they used to hang around on the weekends. Whenever I meet a member of Congress, I ask, you know, do you keep the family here? Uh, and uh, I, I no longer ask that question because nobody brings their family to Washington. Uh, Senator is here, you can tell you, uh, every member I've spoken to says the atmosphere has just gotten worse and worse and worse. Edmund Bond, a moderate Democrat, uh, recently retired, and he said in his 12 years in the Senate, um, he, uh, he, they gathered as a body twice uh, to start a discussion. Uh, you know, I do these Sunday shows, and you're intimately familiar with these shows. One of the reasons you do them is because you need in the green room before you get to spend a half hour with a newspaper to feed in the green. And they began to ask occasionally for separate green rooms. So the Republicans and Democrats are in the same room. And so that, you know, that's just that's pretty unstable atmosphere. Yeah. And by the way, the members, most of them, are unhappy with it. They want to live in a normal, civilized world. But the tribalism got started and now it just keeps going. That's a good question. Around. And so, subsidizing marriage is a good thing. 
I was I went to the University of Chicago. I was deeply formed by that institution. Professor Zobri was deeply formed by this institution. Um, institutional thinking is to me a very healthy way to look at the world. I highly recommend people go to um, Google and Google Ryan Sandberg and Hall of Fame speech. Ryan Sandberg was a second baseman at the Chicago Cubs and he was inducted into the Hall of Fame and he, he, he gave this beautiful speech that I'm not going to do justice to where he said something like, you know, when I came into baseball, I just tried to play the way the people who came before me played. So when I bunted, I hustled. When I hit a double, I hustled the whole way. When I hit a home run, I didn't celebrate. I just ran around the bases. And that's institutional thinking. Follow the, the institutions. Now, our institutions are not necessarily performed well. To me, the most significant piece of polling data in all of politics is the question I've asked for a century. Do you expect government to do the right thing most of the time? And for decade after decade, it was 70 or 80 percent. Now it's about 19 percent. And so there's just been this defining trust in institutions. And I don't think that's partly government's fault, but I think it's partly the citizens' fault. I think finding institutions to um, really follow and believe in uh, is something that you have a sense of normal flaws of human nature in human institutions. You find it easier to do. I recently asked my readers. Uh, people over 70 to send me life reports, these updates about their own lives. And one of the things that was striking is that people who spread this spread that on their own and be rebels at age 70 have much less happy lives than those who found an institution you could like. Now, that doesn't mean you find institutions that keep the status quo. There are many institutions, some of which are completely countercultural. Maybe the Green Party. But finding an institution that you can believe in at the beginning of good health, and I have to say, I think some of the hostility to our institutions is a huge cynicism to say that they're full of crap. And I think most institutions, if they survive, they probably have something legitimate in them. Uh, in my position, we keep some Republicans out that we like. <laughs> I'm a professor of the Chapman Five. I professor of work in Washington. Um, can you explain um, a quote from the United States about the way Congress is getting approval of the ratings that are increasingly low? And people are also extremely frustrated with partisan politics. Um, do you have a beautiful moderate um, approach for moderate politicians to rise to prominence or are less optimistic and you see one of the more partisan? Well, we have been. I mean, I, I would have thought it by now. We've had cycles of American heroes, very polarized. The American Revolution was very open. One of my heroes was Alexander Hamilton, and he was shot by the vice president, so that was polarizing. Um, Civil War, and then we've had this period, and you would have thought it would have ended. Uh, and so I think it will end. I think we're going to have a fiscal crisis sometime in the next five or ten years. Uh, and it will, we'll have to get together because we'll have no choice. And I asked an economist in the White House a couple of years ago, do you think we'll get our act together or will we have a, a fiscal crisis? And he said, no, we'll just get our act together. And I said, well, how bad will the fiscal crisis be? We'll be like Greece or Venezuela or the climate fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, and he said, well, we're from Greece, not as bad as Rome, sort of in the middle there. Uh, and so, you know, I think that we will have a, a crisis and then we'll, we'll get it together. And so, you know, seeking goals is the thing I more or less believe in. I don't agree with every part, but it's a, it's a real compromise. And eventually we'll get to back to some sort of protest after because it's what we have to do. So there's, there's um, a sort of encouraging direction that 
to a mountain in America that wanted to go in and thereby defined it. Uh, my great uncle was a silent movie director with the Gibson series and all that. And he, he made a bunch of westerns. In those days, they shot the silent pictures on the beach of Atlantic City. Uh, and he did, he must have done hundreds of westerns. And he never in his life went west of Missouri. And when he went to his house, he made a lot of money doing this. He had, he had muskets, he had powder horns, he had all this western memorabilia. He had built pictures on the wall of him and Chuck doing the last battle. But he was Irving Browning from New York. He, he imagined this country. And a lot of early music imagined what America was and defined it that way. And then the more recent rock and, and rap uh, and jazz, I guess, I mean, this is me, I'm just, I have no expectation this, but this is my guess. I'm thinking on the moment. Uh, it's mostly about freedom. And in my view, America is a communal country that thinks it's a free individualistic country. We imagine we're the lone rangers off on the range, but we're not really. Uh, this is not this is a movie, not a musical, but the one of my what I forget is the quintessential most accurate American movie about what this country spirit really is is a movie called My Darling Clementine, which is a John Ford Western with uh, Henry Fonda. And most Westerns it's John Wayne alone going off on the range. But my darling Clementine is about building a community. And you find a country town, a Genesis town, they put up a church, they make a school, they build a community. And America is about building communities and leaving and building another one. Because you need to make five bucks an hour more. And so to me, that's what America is. But we have this ethos of ourselves as easy rider on the road, which is what rock and rap and jazz are about, about freedom. And that's sort of our mythos, it's our romance. But it's not actually who we are. It's just more, more community. Hello, my name is Bradley. I'm a sophomore in the history of the I'm going to go to the next one. 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 I
Thank you. 